It's nice to see everyone this morning, although partially and some of you sun glazed over by your windshield, but it's nice to see everyone. Uh, we're going to continue now our study of the Gospel of John, so if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading um, beginning at verse, let's turn there, and we'll begin reading from verse 19. John chapter 3, or uh, we'll begin from verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 18. You hear the word of the Lord. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So far, in our study of John chapter 3, in this discussion that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, he first and foremost addresses Nicodemus' need for a birth from above in verse of chapter 3. When Nicodemus asks with a sense of astonishment, how could this be that he needs to be born again? Jesus presses the point and tells Nicodemus that he must be born of water and of the Spirit. Verse 5. In essence, he's speaking to Nicodemus here of regeneration. What he's talking about is the Spirit of God opening the closed and softening the hard heart from being evil and disobedient and stubborn. The Spirit of God renders the heart good, obedient, pliable. And this is a supernatural work that is powerfully worked by the Spirit himself. This is what Nicodemus is talking to, uh, excuse me, this is what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. He's talking to him about the new birth, regeneration, the need for a new heart. And as Jesus continues, he makes it very clear that this gift, the new birth, regeneration, is purchased at the expense of the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As an expression of God's love, God sent His Son into the world to assume our punishment, the punishment for our sins, so that men might be saved. God's intent in sending His Son into the world was not to condemn the world. That's in verse 17. Yet those who reject Christ, the only Savior of the world, expose, they reveal that they are already condemned. Verse 18. 
and they are condemned because they hate the light and they love evil. Verse 19. And now in verses 20 and 21, what Jesus addresses is the identifying marks of the children of darkness and the identifying marks of the children of light. In verse 20, the identifying marks of the children of darkness. And in verse 21, the identifying marks of the children of light. One of the first maybe important jobs I had, I I worked for a bank. And one of our responsibilities was counting money. And uh, they never had a class to teach us uh, about counterfeit money. What they would do is, as we were counting, the bank manager would slip some fake 20s, a fake 20, a fake 100, into the money that we were, or maybe even uh, fake singles, into the money that we were counting. And after... Uh, interacting so much with real currency, you could tell a fake bill. Nobody had to tell you it was fake. And then after you found the fake bill, then they'd give you some more in-depth instruction. Uh, You see the the coloring or or, uh, the serial numbers off or various other things that they would show you. But just the texture of it even, or maybe even the weight would reveal to you, oh, this is a fake bill. This is not a real, this is not a real 20. And what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus is he is teaching Nicodemus how to identify a fraud. What is the difference between a genuine child of God and an unbeliever? That's what we have here. And listen to how Jesus reveals these marks for us. First, he says, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. Everyone practicing evil. There is a a persistence in doing that which is evil. Now, our categories of evil are, uh, when we think of evil, we think of the worst possible crimes that could be committed. Murder, we think of. Of, of adultery, we think of, of kidnapping, and all of these things do constitute evil. But as we saw two weeks ago, when, we, when we're talking about evil, in essence what we're talking about is sin. We're talking about rebellion against God, that resistance and the refusal to submit the will, the mind, the heart, and our acts to God's will and what God's command. This is truly what evil is. And we talked, uh, I think it was last Sunday during our Sunday school class, we talked about the holiness of God. I think, no, that was uh, two weeks ago. Last week was the wisdom of God. And when we think about the holiness of God, one of the things that I said is it's God-likeness. For us to be holy is to be like God. Well, for us to commit sin is to be completely unlike Him. Evil, sin, is unlike God. Yet notice the tense. Jesus says, everyone practicing darkness. He doesn't say for everyone who practiced. Maybe they've done some evil in the past. What he focuses on is everyone who not only commits evil but persists in it. This person, he says, hates the light. 
And as we saw last time, we were, I was preaching from John 1, the light is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Over and over in the gospel of John, Jesus affirms that he himself is the light of the world. Now, those who continue in darkness, those who persist in it, those who make a lifestyle of sin and disobedience, they reveal, they expose themselves to this truth that they are not children of God. For one to per persist in evil means that they make it a practice. Uh, let me illustrate the point for you. Let's say you have a, a young man just gets his driver's license. And I think here in the state of New York, what, do you got to be 42 to get a driver's license or something like that? But young man gets his driver's license, and uh, he lives in a small town. Uh, uh, the uh, local sheriff knows his parents, and he just comes barreling down this road where there's, a, there's a, a pretty large shift in the speed limit. It goes from 55 to 35. So he pulls the young man over, talks to him, and young man apologizes. Police officer, you know, this is not a practice, it's not a habit. He's just got his driver's license. He's figuring out how to work the radio and, you know, press the gas pedal and work his blinkers and keep his seatbelt on. So the police officer lets it pass. But then he catches him doing it again on the same road and again on different roads and running red lights. What is this young man revealing? His persistency and disobedient and disregard for the law of God. This is what Jesus, for, for the law of the land. And what Jesus is revealing, what he's pointing out here, is that the person who is evil, this one that he says, for everyone that practices evil, the practitioner of evil, is someone who is constantly and consistently engrossed in sin, in rebellion against God in baseness, in lawlessness. And here's a very important point that we need to note, that the unconverted man is not sinning blindly. A person who's not a Christian, he, he, he's not an automaton. He knows that he persists in evil. Fallen man does not blindly sin. He does it knowing. A fallen man may not innately know the gospel, but he knows what is morally right, yet chooses to persist in evil. And the Bible plainly teaches this. Turn to the book of Romans, and this is what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus here in these two verses. This is why the unbeliever doesn't come to Christ, because the unbeliever loves evil. They persist in the practice of evil. They persist in the practice of rebellion. A turn to uh, Romans chapter 2, and uh, I'll begin reading from verse 12, but the focus is going to be on what Paul says in verse 15. So Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> And I'll begin from verse 12. And Paul now is speaking of both Jews and Greeks in light of who they are, uh, being born in trespasses and sins, 
Both Jews and Greeks have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their mouth is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. Ruin and misery is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And they have... Excuse me. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, Paul's point there, of course, is that this is, this is every man. Every man is born in this condition. This condition of rebellion. And it is a sustained rebellion against the ways of God. And Paul is not, oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from chapter 3. And I said Romans 2. I, I, I apologize. Turn, turn to Romans 2. I, I was wondering why uh, the text that I was looking for wasn't there. <laughs> Romans chapter 2. And beginning at verse 12, Paul, Paul says this. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Again, he's speaking both of Jews and of Greeks. What he's talking about here is those that don't have the law of God and those that do have the law of God. And they will both, the one that sins and the one who does righteous, They'll both be judged, whether they have the law or not. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are, excuse me, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. The reason we turn to to Romans chapter 2 was to make this point, that man knows what is morally right. Man does not innately know the gospel, but he knows what is right before God. And Paul demonstrates this in these passages by looking to the Gentile, the Gentile unbeliever who may do things that in substance and the character of the thing is a good thing. Well, how does he know how to do this? Verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. See, a man knows what is right and wrong. And one of the easiest ways to tell is steal somebody's wallet. If you, if you steal somebody's wallet... Immediately, or you take their purse if they're a lady. 
immediately they're going to know that you've done something wrong. You've sinned against them. Man innately knows right and wrong. Yet man, when the gospel is presented, in his fallenness and in his rebellion, will continue to live apart from God. A man continues to bear the image of his creator. After the fall, what man lost was his ability to will anything spiritually good. Man is completely opposed to spiritual good. Even if they do what may be described as a good work in the manner of it. Since it does not proceed from faith, it is not done for and to the glory of God, which would be man's ultimate good. Uh, Paul affirms this in Romans 14.23. Let's turn there briefly. Briefly. In Romans 14.23, Paul says this. And he is speaking of the issue in uh, Romans 14 of uh, Christian liberty. And he draws, really, the conclusion of his argument from this principle. He says in verse 23, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. And here's, here's the point. This is the principle. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. The unbelieving man, no matter what he does, he helps an old lady cross the street, he helps his neighbor paint their house, whatever he does is sin because it do, does not proceed from faith. It's not done for the right reason, ever. He never acts to and for the glory of his creator. Isaiah uh, says it differently when he's speaking to the people of Israel. And he says to them in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all your good deeds are filthy rags. It's communicating the same truth. Man, after the fall, lost his ability, lost the desire to do any spiritual good. Man is completely bankrupt before God. They love darkness and they hate the light and they will not come to the light unless their deeds be exposed. For, for an, unbelie- an unbeliever doing what may be constituted quote unquote good works, it's like a career criminal, someone who they've never held an honest job in their entire life, a career criminal paying taxes. The career criminal even has the wrong motive in paying taxes. He thinks to himself, well, the government's not going to check in on me if I pay my taxes. But even the money that he's using to pay his quote-unquote taxes is stolen money. Everything, all, all that he does is wrong. And this is the same with the unbeliever. He is morally corrupt. Therefore, because of this, because he persists in sin... And because his intent is to continue in sin and in rebellion against God, he doesn't come to the light. He will not come to Christ. Now, I know from, from, uh, from experience and from what the Bible uh, teaches that uh, some of you are sitting and you're having an argument with me. 
you're resisting this truth that Jesus is teaching to Nicodemus. You're recoiling at the very words of, of Christ, what he's saying about the condition of man. But again, remember the context here. Why, why is Jesus speaking this way to Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to Christ, and he is coming to Christ to inquire about his person. He makes a statement, really, but he's wondering who Jesus is. And Jesus confronts him first and foremost, as I said at the beginning of the sermon in the review, with his need for the new birth. Simply put, unconverted men want to continue to roll around in the mire of sin. They don't want to be freed from it. They love their sin. I recall listening to a comedian of Jewish descent, and he was speaking about Christianity in particular. And he was talking about the morality of the Bible. And uh, in his language, you know, uh, or his conception, his thought of what the morality of the, of the Bible is. This was in, a, in a, uh, an interview. And he made a comment. He, he said this. He says, if that is how God wants me to live, speaking about the morality of the Bible, and he exists, well, then he can just send me to hell. That he, what he captured, that, with that kind of crassness, what he captured is the heart of every unconverted person. That's how every unconverted person, every person who resists and refuses to come to Christ in essence, that's how they live. That's what they think in their refusal to come to Christ. He frankly, um, so there he stated frankly his rebellious heart and the rebellious heart of all unbelievers. Others may hide it. They may even be drawn at times to some moral virtue in scripture or to something that is exemplary in a church or in the life of believers. But if they refuse to come to the light, and here we'll be talking about again, the light that Jesus is referring to is Christ himself. If they refuse to come to the Son of God, it is because they are evil and they want their evil, they do not want their evil deeds to be exposed. Uh, what, what he's communicating there by the word exposed is rebuked, reproofed. That's what Christ does. Christ reproves, he corrects the unconverted man. The exposure Jesus is talking about is the rebuke and reproof that the word of God has to offer. That God himself offers to unconverted men. Now, people refuse to turn from the very sins that enslave them. Fornication, homosexuality, uh, murdering their children at abortion mills, drunkenness, gluttony, lying, stealing, cheating, gossiping, pride. You see, these very things that condemn a man, that keep him bound and a slave, they refuse to turn from those things. 
They will not come to the only Savior of the world. And that's why you can see, right? Jesus is giving us this test, this identifying mark of the children of darkness and of the children of light. And he is saying to us, this is why they don't come. They don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. They don't want the reproof. They don't want the correction. They don't want the rebuke of the word of God. They love their sins and they are slaves to sin. Now, why does the rebuke come? Why does God reprove men in his word? Why does he do that? Well, turn to the book of Proverbs. I think Proverbs is uh, one of the best places to turn to consider this. In Proverbs chapter 1, and I'll begin to read from verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the square. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained my counsel and would have, a no, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when disaster and distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning of way of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Note those two last verses. For the turning away of the simple will slay them. This is the person who hears the word of God, right? They hear the call to come to Christ. And what do they do? They turn their face. That's not for me. That will slay them. That will condemn them. On the day of judgment, it'll be that that will condemn them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. You see, there's a set of men and women who they are actually happy with the way that they are. And they may even come to church and sit 
and, and read Bibles and, and sing hymns and be involved in the life of the church, but there's a complacency in their life where there's a refusal to actually come to Christ. They want the form of Christianity. They want the form of godly religion, but they don't want the substance of it because they love their sin. They hate the light. They won't genuinely genuinely come to the light. Now verse 33. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely. This is why Christ calls men to himself, that they might dwell safely, not only in this life, but eternally. This is why Christ calls men to himself. This is why he points out this, this, the, these distinguishing marks to Nicodemus. He, he wants men. His desire is that men might be saved, that they would turn away from their folly, and that they would find safety, that they would be secure and without fear of evil. You see, God is not communicating these things to us uh, just to uh, degrade us, to, to shame humanity. That's not the point. What God does when he reveals these things to us is he's pleading with us. The same reason why fathers plead with their sons to be wise and why mothers fall asleep in tears praying for the soul of their children and why churches preach and pray for the lost because this is the very heart of God. And the reason why men refuse to come is because they love their sin and they don't love Christ. You see, by rejecting the remedy, they are purposefully cherishing the ground of their condemnation. That's what they're doing. I love my sin. I won't come to the Lord Jesus. This is what I love, and this is what I want. And that, friends, is evil. You see, that, that is the characteristic that shines through. That is perverseness and utter wickedness at its greatest height. The refusal to come to the Savior to receive forgiveness of sins. Because you love your sin, and you hate the light. The nature of Christ and his gospel is to expose the sinfulness and error of man. That's what the gospel does. That's why he calls himself the light of the world. He reveals God and he shines over the shadow of the valley of death. And he exposes and reveals our corruption and our need for him, for a savior. Eternal life cannot be attained apart from him. Therefore, men and women, given over to their sins and vices, hate Christ and his gospel. This is a hard saying, right? Uh, who can bear it? Like the, the disciples said this when Jesus was speaking to them. Why do we even have to contemplate these truths? 
Because some of you may have your, your own relatives, people you love, friends you cherish in mind when you think about these things. And uh, would, wouldn't it be better uh, just to f- maybe just, just to focus on the good things in the Bible? And to leave these hard truths, you know, for, for another period of time. We have to focus on these things. On these truths. We must deal with them. Because if man would be right with God, he must know these things. If a man would come rightly to embrace the gospel and cast himself upon the mercy of God in Christ, he must know these things. He must know of his desperate need for a savior. It's, 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 it's not just theologizing. It's not just, uh, this is not a sermon on moral reform. I'm not saying you need to change your life. It's impossible. You can't change your life. You need a savior. And, and men must come to this point where they, where they realize that the reason why I don't read my Bible, the reason why I don't pray, the reason why I don't share the gospel with unbelievers is because I don't want my sin exposed. That's the issue. That's, that's the nub of the thing that we have to deal with. And what infuriates me most as a pastor is when self-professed pastors or men of God or preachers of the word out of sheer fear of men refuse to preach these truths. It's a disservice to you. If, if you listen to pastors who don't speak these truths to you, you're doing yourself a disservice. What you're doing is you're inoculating yourself and others you may share those messages, those sermons with, to this truth. Uh, Remember, I'm not reading from a theology book. I'm quoting John chapter 3, one of the most beloved chapters of the Bible. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And it is in that very context that Jesus chooses to bring to light the distinguishing mark of the children of darkness and of the children of light. And men want to preach that people are under grace or that judgment preaching was for the prophets of the Old Testament and they were preaching to unconverted Israel. But you see, what Jesus is doing here is not preaching condemnation for condemnation's sake. Neither were the Old Testament prophets. But what he's doing here is he's bringing to light the nature of man, the blackness and the darkness of his own soul so that he might need so that he might see his need for the light of the world. This kind of exposure, right, to the nature of man, to my nature. I'm not just talking about other people. I'm talking about the nature of man, right, being what it, what it means to be born in trespasses and sins makes the gospel sweeter. When you understand the the real bitterness of your own soul, 
and your inability to get to heaven based upon your own merits. It doesn't matter how many times you prayed a prayer, how many times you got baptized, rededicated. None of that matters. That won't save you. Jesus saves sinners. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And here, uh, I'm going to Ephesians um, to to make a, a special point of application. Because, right, so let's say you agree with me. These are truths that we ought, that these are truths that ought to be preached and I want to sit under uh, a ministry or uh, in a church where these things are proclaimed. But do you know that you have a responsibility to do that also? That's, that's what Paul points to here in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at verse 8. He's speaking to believers. And the emphasis really of chapter, this section of, of, of Ephesians um, He's, he's applying the gospel. And he's exhorting them to walk in love. And now he says to the believers, in beginning at verse 8, he says, For you were once darkness. That was you before. But now you are light in the Lord. Not in and of yourself. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That, that, that is, uh, and we'll see this a little, we'll see this in verse 21. This is what it means to come to the light. And to dwell in that light. Now verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather expose them. That's the same word Jesus uses. Rebuke them. Reprove them. That's our responsibility. He's not just talking to preachers. He's not talking to Timothy. He's talking to Christians. This is what we ought to do. Why? For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, this is why, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That's why you do it. That's why you take your unconverted son by by the wrists at your dinner table, and you plead with him to turn from his sins, that Christ might give him light, and he might awaken from his sinful slumber. That's why you plead with your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and you pray and you ask God for patience and you ask God to open the door so that you might speak the truth in love so they might awaken from their slumber. That's why Jesus is talking to Nicodemus this way. He wants him to wake up. You're dead in sins. And the only thing that can give you life is Christ himself. Wake up. So this is not a responsibility that Christ just puts into the hands of preachers, but Paul exhorts even the church. He says to them, do the same. 
Reprove, correct. Give those exhortations. The unfruitful bring forth evil fruit that is destructive to the soul. So Paul emphasizes these things, the very things that Christ is emphasizing himself, these works of darkness, that we're to reprove them, works of evil. And this, of course, displays our love for our brother. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, Moses is speaking to the people on behalf of the Lord, and he says this in Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. What he is saying, what he is doing is... Uh, uh, so this lady is, is like taking pictures of our license plates and stuff, so it's a little distracting, but that's okay. What he's saying, what he's, what he's doing here is um, in Leviticus 19.17, is he is telling the people that hatred for their brother is a refusal to rebuke and to correct them. It's a refusal to come to them, to come to your neighbor and say to your neighbor what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. It's detrimental. Uh, Jesus repeats very similar words in Matthew 18, 19, when he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So, Again, the, the, uh, Christ comes Christ comes to his people. The reason why he does this is for their good. Christ reveals these truths to Nicodemus for his own good, that he might know the estate of his own soul. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, The application of this verse must doubtless be made with caution. In the case of many unconverted person, persons, its truth is plain as noonday. They love sin and hate true religion and get away from the gospel, the Bible, and religious people as much as they possibly can. In the case of others, its truth is not so apparent at first. They are many, there are many unconverted persons who profess to like the gospel and seem to have no prejudice against it and to hear it with pleasure, and yet remain unconverted. Yet even in the case of those persons, this text would be ground enough to condemn them. There is something or other which they love better, and which keeps them back from Christ. There is something or other which they do not want to give up, and do not like to be discovered and reproved. Man's eyes may not detect it, but the eyes of God can. The general principle of the text will be found true at last of every hearer of the gospel who dies unconverted. He did not thoroughly love the light, 
He did not really want to be changed. He did not truly and honestly seek salvation. And this was true of the Jews in the time of Nicodemus. And it is no less true of all mankind to whom the gospel comes in the present day. If a man keeps away from the light, his heart is wrong. He is one who does evil. So now, next is the identifying marks of the children of God. Listen to what Jesus says. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. There is a persistence in the truth. A persistence in the truth. And of course, this is, uh, what this leads to is a clear conscience before God. Not sinless perfection. No, no Christian in history has been sinless, save Christ, of course. We're not talking about sinless perfection. What we're talking about is a clean conscience. A man who understands, a woman who understands, a child who understands their true need for a Savior and comes to Jesus the way Jesus is offered in the gospel and then endeavors uh, um, dependently, weakly, and what I mean, not, not every week, but I mean weak in their physical constitution or maybe even spiritual constitution. They're weak and they're dependent, but they continue to come to Christ. That one has this clean conscience, this assurance that they are right with God. So they come to the light. They continue to come to the light. Note the tense here. The person comes again and again to the light. A good conscience is a powerful weapon in the fight of faith. A child of God longs for God's approval. We want to hear the words, even now, well done, good and faithful servant. And as children, what we wanted most really was the approval approval of those who looked after us or looked over us in school, with your teachers, at home, with your parents, maybe with older siblings. What what you wanted was their approval in some sense. And there's a very true sense that the Christian lives in this way. We want the approval of God. We want the divine favor. So we continue to come to the light that our deeds might be exposed. And Christ himself affirms this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. He's speaking of the nature of of the church and of Christians. And in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, we're, we're, the, we're the spice of this world, right? The Christian church, that's what, that's what we are, we're supposed to be. We're, we're uh, you know, to, to make it, uh, to, we're the adobo and the sazon of the planet, right? We give it its flavor, its liveliness. That's what the church is supposed to do. You are the light of the world, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Right? That's, that, this is what, the, what God's people do. They, they salt the world, and they give light in the world. For what purpose? That we may get a bunch of attaboys, good job, you're such a nice guy. No, that's not why we do it. Verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's why. That's why the church chooses to live in subjection to God, that God might get all the glory, that the praise might be returned to him. And Christians continue to come to the light so that their works may be manifest because our works are done in God. That is, according to God's commands and empowered by the grace of God. Whatever good we do, whether we avoid sin, whether we repent of what we have done, whatever it is that we do, evangelize, care for our children, pray, whatever good work we do. We understand that all of these works have been empowered and enabled by God himself. Jesus isn't teaching, of course, that good works or a good conscience comes before faith. Again, remember, right? Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's teaching us that unbelievers would do, as Calvin says, uh, as Calvin put it, they had not a bad conscience. Oh, excuse me. Uh, he is teaching us what unbelievers would do, as Calvin says, if they had not a bad conscience. What would unbelievers do hypothetically speaking, if they had a clean conscience before God. They would come to him. That's what the child of God does. The child of God has a clean conscience, not because of his own good works. He understands that he was dead like the unbeliever, but now he's light. He's been brought into the light. He has received the forgiveness of sins by the cross of Christ. He's heard that, that message of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He's heard that message and he's come for eternal life. He knows he's a sinner in need of grace and favor from God. So he comes. And he continues to come. We who are justified before God in Christ and seek God's forgiveness for our sins daily and endeavor after new obedience, those of us who have been freed from hypocrisy should have no fear to come to the light that we might learn God's ways and repent of all that is displeasing to him and exercise faith to perform obedience in his sight. Isn't that Paul's point? Remember, we just read that in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, we focused on the latter half, but in the first, uh, in the first half of the text, beginning at verse 8, what does Paul highlight? Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's why the child of light continues to come to the light. For that divine acceptance. Lord God, am I, am I, am I living the way that I ought to live? Am I loving others? Am I, uh, uh, um, we could frame this around the Lord's prayer, right? Am I acting like God is my heavenly father? Am I, am I living in such a way that men would hollow his name? Do I have a desire for God's kingdom to come on earth? And do I live in light of that? Do I live like I am a citizen of that heavenly kingdom? Am I asking for forgiveness daily? Am I offering it to others and giving it to others freely? Do I depend on God for everything that I need? And do I thank him for everything that I have? The child of God continues to come to the word. He continues to learn God that he might learn God's ways. And that their works have been done in God. We're not trying to, uh, as Christians, we're not trying to one-up unbelievers. We were unbelievers. See, we, the, the Christian knows the unbeliever better than an unbeliever could ever know a Christian because we were there. That's what we're doing. We're not blowing our own trumpets. We're not, we're, we're not like the Pharisee who was in the temple praying, praising his good works. That's not us. That's not the Christian heart. The fact that we want to stand firm and confident upon what the Bible says about fallen man, the reason why we do that is because we want to highlight the greatness of our Savior and the, the inexpressible joy that can be found in the gospel. That's why we do it. These verses 20 through 21 don't explain how one becomes a Christian, of course. That was in verse, uh, verse 3, right? The new birth. You must be born from above. And verse 5, you must be born of the water and of spirit. And verse 16, uh, believing in the Son of God. What Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus here is why the unbeliever stays away from the light. Why he doesn't come. And why the believer comes to the light. He's presupposing faith here. In essence, what Jesus is saying is the reason why the other Pharisees and your other friends haven't come is because they don't want their sin to be exposed. They don't want the reproof. They don't want the correction that I have to offer. They don't want to be saved. I'll end with this. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he, he writes this. Think not that you can stay away from me after hearing this discourse and be saved. If you are really earnest and are earnestly inquiring after the truth and your heart is honest and sincere, you must go on. You must come to the light and embrace the light. And you will do so. However great your present ignorance. If on the other hand, you are not really desirous to serve God, you will prove it by keeping away from the gospel and by not confessing Christ 
as the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word for your people. Lord, we pray for the lady that was here taking pictures of our license plates. That uh, I pray that she's listening on the radio now. And I pray that you would convert her, Lord, and cause her to, to embrace the light. And give us boldness, Lord, in the face of uh, even subtle opposition uh, to continue preaching the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.